Atari was always a premium coin-operated manufacturer, a premium game developer. And what I mean by that is we had that sense at Atari. We, we knew there were other companies out there, competitors. We were the Cadillacs. They were the Chevys. Hi, I'm Dennis Koble, Atari veteran and creator of Sprint 2, and you're listening to the Ted Dabney Experience. Welcome to the Ted Dabney Experience. I'm Richard May, and this is a podcast project that affords Paul Drury, hello, Tony Temple, hi, and myself an opportunity to talk at length with the key creatives and pioneers from the golden age of interactive entertainment. You'll likely recognise Paul's byline from Retro Gamer magazine, and Tony is the author of Missile Commander: A Journey to the Top of an Arcade Classic, as well as being the proprietor of the renowned ArcadeBlogger.com. As only the fourth programmer hired by Atari in 1976, Dennis Coble saw coin-operated video games transition from TTL hardware, that's transistor to transistor logic, to early microprocessors. He worked on the first iteration of a long-running racing game series, Sprint, and was also responsible for Avalanche, an early black-and-white Atari title that would inspire Activision's Kaboom. Dennis left Atari to co-found Magic, which enjoyed huge success making third-party Atari 2600 games before the video game market imploded in the mid-80s. If you like the Ted Dubney experience, please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, or simply tell a few friends. You can find all the usual social media links at tdepodcast.net. Hi, I'm Gary Vincent. And I'm Mike Stuhler. The Ted Dabney Experience podcast is brought to you in association with ACAM, the American Classic Arcade Museum. Visit ClassicArcadeMuseum.org to learn more about our collection and visit us in Laconia, New Hampshire. Dennis, you joined Atari in 1976, and before that you'd worked for companies that were involved with both military defense and NASA. Um were you not concerned you were getting into uh, maybe a passing fad with these silly video games? Oh, yes. I, I, I That thought crossed my mind. <laughs> I had a uh, friend who was working at Atari as the manager. He was the manager of the development group and the games group. And uh, they didn't really have separate departments back in those days. It was just coin-op at that time. Uh, later came Consumer and the, all the other divisions. And uh, yeah, I he invited me over. I wasn't looking for a job. I mean, it's, it's a story that I relate. And it's really true. So I went over and of course it was fascinating, you know, little spaceships running around the screen and all that sort of thing. And he explained that they were just now starting to get into, you know, the uh, single chip computers, which had just been introduced really. Yes. And um, he said that they had hired a couple of they had one programmer that worked in the group. His name was uh, Tom Hogue, I believe. And um, he had hired um, a couple of guys, one of them who went to work there about a week before I ended up going there. So I list myself as the fourth programmer that Atari ever hired. But uh, actually, sometimes some of the accounts have listed me as the third programmer, but I was okay. really the fourth. 
you were you were definitely early doors you, yeah. you said you were fascinated with what you saw were you a frequent arcade goer at this time uh not particularly i mean i you know like many uh kids uh, of a younger age i was fascinated with pinball machines but they were kind of far and few between you just didn't run into a pinball machine every time you you know went out uh they were only in certain places and they didn't really have arcades back then they had uh bars and mm-hmm. um but uh they would occasionally have them at bowling alleys and things like that okay so you, you said that you were either the third or the fourth um programmer to join um i wondered what you found on your arrival if you're that uh early joining the programming team i mean was there was there much there in place when you arrived uh not particularly there was um the engineering group uh atari was a uh, one building company back when I accepted the offer. And uh, when I got there, you know, a couple, three weeks later or whenever it was, they had just split off their engineering group and moved it to a small facility a half a mile or so from the main building. We were basically uh, starting off there. So that was mainly engineers and technicians. And uh, like I say, the occasional programmer at that point. Uh, So it was kind of... uh, a very cozy environment is the way I would put it, because it was crowded almost immediately uh, from the first moment I got there. We were sharing. We started off sharing two people in an office mm-hmm. and there were very few offices. And uh, very quickly, that became three people and eventually even crammed four people into one of these little offices. And they were small offices. The story I like to tell is, is that I shared an office with uh, Dan Van Eldren, who was a ah. tech at the time, who ended up becoming president of Atari eventually, yeah. and uh, Howard Delman, who was the engineer. And we had three desks crammed into this little, I would say it was no more than, oh, probably around seven by nine or something. It was a very, very small office. And we would uh, lean back in our chairs and we'd put our feet up on our desk. And we were kind of so packed in that when we did that, there was literally no extra space in the office. No, you couldn't walk in. You couldn't walk out. It was just jam. <laughs> that is cozy. Um, before we get on to talking about your video game programming, um, we understand that you actually did some work in pinball. Yeah. Um, particularly on the, the table, the Atarians. Now, I think that means you must have worked with the legendary pinball designer, Steve Ritchie. Um, we hear that he wasn't always the easiest person to work with. Is that true? <laughs> That's absolutely true. Uh, the project I worked on, uh, he was not on that project. This was after we had Atari had moved their engineering and a lot of their company down to Sunnyvale. We were originally in Los Gatos. And we had a, a fairly large building. The engineering department was started off as one floor and eventually grew to two floors or maybe even a little larger. And um, so pinball was just getting started at that time. I had been working in the coin-op then for a while. And uh, they needed a programmer. Uh, They really didn't have any programmers in pinballs. So I went over and started working on what was to become the Superman pinball. Ah, yes. Um, Steve Ritchie was working on something else. I couldn't tell you what that was. I never saw the project. But Steve had a reputation even back then. I, I haven't seen him in 30 or 40 years, so it's been quite a while. He may have changed dramatically, but <laughs> he was very, very, he wasn't, it turns out, untypical of a lot of designers later. You know, the 
I hesitate to say this, but I'll go ahead and say it. <laughs> Most of the very best designers were rather arrogant. Okay. And they knew they were knew they were good. And, and by and large, they were good. And I throw several individuals into that category. You know, David Crane uh, certainly was that way. Mm. My ex-business partner, Lee Actor, certainly fell into that category. Um, although he never worked directly for Atari as an employee, but he had that that attitude, mm-hmm. as did Steve Ritchie, and as did uh, Eugene Jarvis eventually. Um, you know, and um, they were. So, all... are you suggesting that people need to be slightly cocky to make good games? No, not necessarily. I I wouldn't go so far as to say that, but I would say that this was one of the types of people that you know were in the business. I mm. mean, they were very ego-driven, you know, centrist. Let's talk about someone else with a big personality back then at Atari, and that's Nolan Bushnell. Yeah. Um, I just wondered, how much contact did you have with Nolan back when you started in 1976? Was he around a lot of the time? Well, not particularly at the very, very beginning. He was at, when I joined them, they had just started negotiating with, uh, with Warner Communications, you know, and, mm. and, uh, and so I assume that Nolan was spending most of his time being part of that negotiation. And uh, I found that later, as I was at Atari, because I ended up spending quite a number of years there, I got to know Nolan a lot better. He started showing up a lot more. And then eventually, when some of the Atari people moved over to, well, it started off as Vidia, but eventually became Sente. That would be Ed Rothberg and Roger Hector and Howard Delman. And I joined them. And Nolan was on the board uh, for that company. Yeah. Um, and um, I got to see him a lot more. I got to go to several parties at his place and you know, brainstorming sessions and things like that. Hang on. You've just mentioned you went to parties at Nolan's house. We, we need to ask because it's a big concern of the podcast. Does that mean you ever got in his hot tub? <laughs> uh, I personally didn't, but I uh, have know quite a number of people who did. I mean, we were there many times. Um, it was kind of funny. Um, you know, I guess I could draw a parallel a little bit to Elon Musk is probably a very similar individual to Nolan in a lot of ways. I think that that uh, entrepreneurs like that, like Nolan and Elon, and there's been a few others along the way, um, very much, uh, again, very smart people, hard workers, legendarily hard workers, actually, uh, but also idea people. Yes. And their their reach was always really kind of beyond their grasp in many cases. I don't want to go into Elon Musk's hot tub. I'll, I'll make that clear. Um, just... <laughs> Just one thing. So you were there at the time when uh, Atari was being bought by Warner. Uh-huh. I just wondered whether you, as you, you know, you stopped there in 76. So as it went into to 77, did you see big changes, what with the new management or was it just business as usual? No, not really. Uh, you have to remember, I'll, I'll draw you a little more of the timeline. I'm not really good with timelines, but I'll go ahead and give you my perception. You'll have to remember that when I joined Atari, a lot of people assume I joined Atari when it was just started. Yeah. But in reality, uh, the programming group and stuff didn't get going till four years later. And um, I joined the company basically four years after it was founded. Mm-hmm. And uh, so for me, there was already an existing culture yeah. that was there, which I found myself very attracted to and you know comfortable working in. And then when Warner came along, they assigned... Uh, one individual uh, by the name of Manny Gerard, which I'm sure you know yes, the name. Heard that name. And Manny was truly, I can't say enough good things about him, at least from my perspective. He was uh, 
he understood the creative process. He was an easy going, easy guy to work with. And uh, he was a joy, actually, uh, to be around. Uh, some of the people at Atari, you know, the managers were not <laughs> quite into that same, uh, uh, you know, category. I mean, Gene Lipkin is probably the most famous one. He uh, he was the he was really uh, a boss that you kind of quaked in your shoes when you saw him coming. Right. He was uh, <laughs> he was a pretty hard guy to work for. Let me tell you. Okay. But he was smart and he was hard driving and everything. So I respect that part of Gene's personality. But but there were many good managers at Atari too. So. Your first release game for Atari was uh, Sprint 2, mm-hmm. but it was not the first overhead racer that Atari had produced. Um, obviously, there was, uh, for example, Grand Track 10 in 1974, which, uh, from what we read, uh, was far from a success and had reputedly almost bankrupt Atari. Mm. I just wonder if you were at all nervous about taking on uh, Sprint 2 as a project, given this past failure? No, not really. Uh, number one, you'll um, you have to understand that this was for me. Um, this was back in the era. Well, I was fortunate. The fourth member of our team was Lyle Rains. Mm-hmm. Now, Lyle was one of these. I think he would share the arrogant characteristics of, say, a uh, Steve Ritchie and some of the others. But he's not an arrogant person. Uh, Lyle's just a very quiet person, but he's quite brilliant and uh, was very, very logical and very, very good at his job, really. And uh, so he was the, quote, leader of our team. Uh, and I, I'd love to tell you he's a close friend. I still correspond with him, actually, occasionally. But he is not, he's not the kind of person who engenders close friendships in general. Mm-hmm. Um, but I could sit there and truly respect his, uh, you know, knowledge and wisdom and, and guidance. And when I started at Atari, uh, I didn't know anything about, like you said, I didn't know much about arcade games or what was really involved or anything. So I was quite willing to follow his direction. And uh, to be honest with you, I wasn't even aware there were other driving video games at the time or anything. You know, I, I only came to understand that stuff later, you know. And of course, there were other follow-ups to uh, Grand Track, um, Indy 800. I just wondered if, if if you used some of those earlier games as a template for the projects you were working on. Nope, not at all. Not not in the least. Okay. Um, there was actually one released right after Sprint 2 was, which was a successor to Grand Track 10. Uh, it was done by the Grass Valley Group. And uh, that was Ron Milner and Mayer and that group. Mm-hmm. And again, I didn't know them at the time. I got to know them right later. I still talk to, to Ron Milner every once in a while and Steve Mayer. But yeah, there's uh, uh, they basically were kind of following the old generation of the Grand Track things. And those were done in hardware and stuff. When we did the software version, we could do some things that would have been very difficult in, in hardware. Like, yeah, I was uh, going mm-hmm. I was going to ask you about that. I wonder if you can talk in layman's terms the the sort of key differences between some of those early sort of TTL hardware based um, games versus what what you were doing, i.e., programming software. Yeah, you might you have to ask yourself, well, why did you know computers come along? Why were they considered so ideal, really, in games as opposed to the hardware? Well. I mean, the answer is, is that hardware was very difficult to change and to tweak. Mm-hmm. You know, you uh, it it took a very competent hardware guy to design the circuitry and put it all together. And they had some minor ability to tweak those games. But 
not really to the same degree that you could with a computer-based game. Right. And so one of the differences, to give you an example, would be uh, if you remember in Sprint 2, you know, as you wheel the steering wheel around, especially going around corners, the car kind of lags you and then its tail spins out and its tail's kind of wiggling as it, you know, gains the track and everything. And um, not really very easy to do at all in hardware. Uh, so that's one difference that I would say was definitely there. Uh, the ability to add extra tracks, uh, the ability to change the graphics. Well, we, we had a limited capability because of the memory and everything and the amount of pixels on the screen. But all those th issues were, you know, much easier to do in computers than they were in the hardware. Although we were dealing with very primitive computers back in those days. I guess one of the obvious things that I would imagine would have been easier to do would be the addition of uh, the computer-controlled cars mm -hmm. and also programming some sense of a very sort of primitive AI. Exactly. We'll call it primitive physics is what we'll call it because that's really what it was. And some sort of AI, you're right, because how do the, how do the uh, chase cars or the other cars follow the track and all that sort of thing. And I can tell you, uh, Lyle came up with a basic idea of how it turns out that the direction of the track, uh, the one way to think about it, it was designed into a large grid. In each of the grid squares, and there were probably, well, I don't know, on a typical track, there would have been 30 or 40 grid squares. And he would basically program a direction into each of those grids. And it would be as simple as a I would guess uh, an eight-point star is the way to think about it. You know, there would be a little arrow that would point uh, on each grid track uh, square. And um, the cars would read that as they drove over that, and then they would slowly adjust to that, you know, direction. Okay. And Lyle came up with that concept, and uh, it gave that sort of more realistic view of the Chafe's car and the things that it could do and stuff, you know, in terms of direction, changing direction, things like that. You mentioned Dan Van Eldren earlier, mm -hmm. who would ultimately become the president of Atari Games many years later. Mm -hmm. What memories do you have of working with him during that time? Well, uh, you know, it's funny. I keep coming back to this. I don't want to give you the impression everybody at Atari was like this, but Dan was somewhat arrogant, <laughs> a, very, uh, a very smart guy. He was considered actually a super tech or the best of all the techs back in those days, from my, as I recall. Um, he was... Um, he was always friendly and, and civil, and he never yelled or anything like that. It's just that he had a, a very high opinion of his own abilities, and he wasn't afraid to let, again, a characteristic of Steve Ritchie and a few others, he wasn't afraid to let people that he didn't consider his equal, you know, he wasn't afraid to basically insult them, <laughs> I mean, without, without meaning to. You know, I was watching an old Sherlock episode last night, and I just love how Sherlock Sherlock is so arrogant and he he just openly insults people around him all the time, you know, without really thinking too much about it or meaning to insult them. But he just is because he's so much better than they are. Yep. And uh, and Van Eldren was very much that way. He was uh, he was a very, very good tech, mm -hmm. very smart guy. And I'm sure that's what drove him, you know, ultimately to be a apparently a pretty good president of Atari during those years. Yeah. Um, and how did he interface with you in terms of the actual game? Well, I, like I say, I shared an office with him and Howard Delman, and uh, I worked very closely with both of them because this was the era when 
if you added a resistor or a capacitor, you know, and it cost two or three cents, that was a huge deal. Right. Whereas they had a at best a hazy notion of what it cost or anything to, you know, what it would cost to change a line of code, let's say, or to add a new subroutine or something along those lines. You know, mm -hmm. this was the, the more hardware centric version of uh, programming, you know, back okay. in those days. It's before memory became cheap and processors became fast and everything. You know, we did everything from scratch, you know, whether it be some rudimentary floating point or or rudimentary physics or all those kinds of things. Now that stuff's all built into all the hardware, you know, you don't have to worry about it anymore. But even in later years, that was what we spent most of our time doing is solving technical problems. Sprint 2 was, was ultimately released under the banner of key games. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you can if you can talk a little about um, w whether there was any logic behind which, which games were badged as Atari and which were badged as key and, uh, and, and why that whole situation came about. Well, yeah, I don't, I wasn't privy to the, you know, management end of it. So I can't really give you any, mm. the story I've heard. Well, for starters, let's uh, put a couple of, uh, Joe Keenan was one of the other executives, very nice guy. Uh, I never got to know Joe very well because he wasn't at Atari that long after I joined. But he was the president of Key Games, as I recall. And um, the idea was that uh, this was a market that was where the customers weren't really the public per se. It was the operators who ran the machines. That's who we were trying to cater to. In other words, if they made money, a game, i.e. a game was popular, that's what really drove the business, not whether an individual consumer had a good time. We, we made the assumption that if a consumer had a good time, then the operator would have a good time because he'd be making all sorts of quarters, you know. But anyway, uh, he there was a concern among the operators, much as there's a concern about movie theater operators today, that they didn't want to buy too much of one product or a product from one company. Uh, they were interested in maintaining a competitive atmosphere among the manufacturers and the developers. And so the key games came about, uh, I was told, because it was a way to basically allow the operators to think that they were buying from a different company and therefore, you know, weren't buying all their product from Atari. Right. Uh, and, you know, the fact of the matter is almost from day one, well, I say that in retrospect, uh, but Atari was always a premium coin-operated manufacturer, a premium game developer. And what I mean by that is we had that sense at Atari. We, we knew there were other companies out there, competitors. We were the Cadillacs. They were the Chevys, <laughs> or whatever <laughs> you want to call it. Right. Uh, so, you know, consequently... Uh, that had that was, you know, I guess you could say that's part of the arrogance of Atari and some of the best individuals ended up there. But I can remember oft times feeling not necessarily personally, but for, as a company feeling scorn for some other companies and stuff because they were they were, you know, everything from bottom feeders to me too kind of people. And, you know, uh, that was kind of an attitude that was kind of prevalent at Atari for quite a while. Sure. Yeah, interesting. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about my own experiences of uh, Sprint 2 over here in the UK. Uh, Sprint 2 was the first game to roll off of Atari Island's production line. Interesting. I came across Sprint 2 in Mad Harry's Arcade in Bristol in the late 70s, I, I would guess it was. Um, and the thing that struck me about the cabinet was the glorious side art. Oh, Beautiful. You know, I, I think as a whole package, when you walked into an arcade and you saw Sprint 2 there, you know, 
uh, two steering wheels, wide body cabinet, fantastic side art. It, that, I think, primarily was what drew me to it as opposed to what I saw on screen. And it, it just sort of screamed, I have to put a coin in. Yep. Um, do you know who was responsible for the for the artwork? It was it Bob Flamate? Yeah. It, it was Bob, okay. Yeah, there was a lot of, uh, I will say this, Atari attracted a lot of absolutely first-rate artists. Yeah. And I, I don't say that from bias of working at Atari. They were good, just flat-out great artists, uh, a lot of them. Um, and Bob Flamante was one of the best. He did he did front panel art and, and uh, cabinet art and stuff that was... They, he was he was fabulous, you know, an absolute excellent artist in his own right. Mm. And um, these were people that were so good that they oftentimes, uh, I don't know whether it was in their employment agreement or not, but oftentimes they would have multiple jobs, you know, not not a full time job like at Atari, but they would be selling artwork or they would be doing ads for somebody or they would be doing some projects for somebody and. I mean, they were that good. There were people. There were people collect some of their art to this day. I mean, it's it's really good stuff. Uh, Bob Flamante, again, one of the best. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he by no means only the best. You know, there were several really good ones there. What were your feelings, Dennis, when you know seeing your creation out there in the field being played and enjoyed by uh, by the kids of America? Well, there were two thoughts. Okay, back in those days. Um, I had already moved on to consumer by the time, you know, Sprint was, Sprint had an extraordinarily long run, number one. And, um, you know, they paid, uh, well, to give you an idea from a practical point of view, they paid royalties of a sort. They were considered to be royalties or quarterly bonuses that were based on sales of the games that you had worked on and and your relative importance in creating that game. And so I had moved on to consumer and stuff. And every quarter I would come down and we were on the second floor and the coin op was on the first floor. And I would come down once a quarter to collect my bonus check. And it was kind of funny because there was already a built-in rivalry between coin op and consumer at that time. And so most people were persona non grata on the other side. I mean, uh, basically the coin op people thought that the consumer people were very uncreative and were just ripping off their brilliant creations. And the consumer people thought, well, you know, being having a great coin op game is uh, fine, but we're repackaging it basically and, you know, reprogramming it for the consumer market, which will sell vast numbers of, uh, you know, these games as opposed to selling a few thousand. And so each side had a point, of course, but uh, I was one of the, well, I would dare say I might have been the only one uh, individual who could cross that barrier, that invisible barrier. Why? Because I had most of my friends were still in CoinOp, even though I was a manager of consumer at that point and, you know, and the computers and everything. But most people couldn't cross that barrier. Now, later they were able to, but the whole coin-op group was a very insular group, mm-hmm. even when after consumer came along and everything, you know, there was definite rivalry there. Yeah. And and you're, in terms of actually seeing your game out on the arcade floor, did you visit arcades to... to- yeah, absolutely. By that point, yeah, I was very interested. There was an absolute superb arcade down in uh, Santa Cruz at the boardwalk. There was everything in there. There was all sorts of rides and carousels and, you know, uh, cotton candy booths and things like that. But there was also an absolutely fabulous arcade. And um, 
they prided themselves on the time of having every game in existence, or at least that was their goal. And so you'd walk in there and there would literally be, seem like there was hundreds of games. I think probably practically there were no more than 50 to 100 games or something in there. But it was really large for an arcade because we, you know, I went to all the arcades at that point. You know, every every time I got a chance, I would check them out, you know. And it was always, you know, I will say it's always gratifying to see a Sprint 2 sitting there or a uh, or an Avalanche or a Domino's or one of the games that I had worked on, you know, in Coin-Op. It's, it's always gratifying to see that, you know. Yeah, it must be interesting watching um, the general public interface with your game and maybe watching them do things that you hadn't anticipated. Yes, that was quite often the case. <laughs> well, like I've kind of mentioned before in other broadcasts and stuff is that as a designer, the first thing you learn, which is a very humbling experience, is that there are players out there who far exceed your own capabilities. I mean, far exceed them. Right. And uh, therefore can do things with the game that you simply couldn't envision could ever be done. That was one thing. I think there's a feeling and, you know... Uh, Maybe that's engendered by the whole Hollywood thing, you know, that's been around forever. There's a feeling among the general public that if you create something as a success, an entertainment product, doesn't matter whether it's a book or a movie or a performance or a piece of music or whatever it is, video game, there's a feeling that somehow these people are just absolutely brilliant and just and in reality i don't think it really works that way for most people i mean maybe it does for hollywood actors because they get so much publicity and they see their faces and their names you know mentioned everywhere all the time but you know for us you know more mortal individuals in the world uh <laughs> it's not quite the same thing. I would be continually slightly embarrassed, and I am to this day, that when I go to a show or I give a talk or I go somewhere for a public appearance, I am always a little embarrassed when, you know, basically adoring fans come up and, and just, you know, agog that they've met the designer of whatever game they're particularly interested in. Right. And, um, you know, they, they have a certain level of adulation in there, which is kind of weird. And then, of course, the biggest complaint or disappointment <laughs> when you're young this is a very important thing you know you want to be able to attract members of the opposite sex and uh it was it was and probably still is largely a male-dominated thing you know so it was always a disappointment that we didn't have hordes of adoring you know attractive young females <laughs> that were that were interested in what we were doing you know but that's the way life works so Dennis, your second published game was Dominoes in 1977, um, a head-to-head -head snake game, um, as I understand Atari's version of uh, Gremlin's Blockade, which came out the previous year. And Soup to Nuts was all done within 13 weeks, which, you know, quite the turnaround, even for this era. Uh, it was quite a record, even in those days, yes. Mm. Did you have any qualms about essentially copying another company's game concept? Um, yeah, a little bit, uh, to be honest with you. But, and quite frankly, that might have been the only case, although I'm sure you could come up with some others, that it might be the only case of where Atari ever actually saw a hit game on the market and copied the gameplay, basically. Sure. Uh, it, Atari just didn't do stuff like that in general. Uh, I think they felt they were kind of forced into it because of the incredible success of Blockade. Mm. And uh, all the other companies were coming out with their various clones of it. And, uh, you know, Atari was still 
recognizably probably the biggest uh, arcade company you know uh, in existence in terms of least public perception. Hmm. And uh, so they felt that they you know would be an opportunity, especially if they could turn it around quickly to make some money. And I think it did probably. Um, hmm. Now again, this is uh, you know the project leader was Lyle Rains again. And um, I basically followed his direction in, in doing it, you know, adding a few little things of my own, of course. But uh, he um, he was uh, very perceptive and very aware of, you know, the, the finer points of each game and things like that. Mm. So Well, Domino's does play really well, um, especially against a human opponent. Mm-hmm. Um, with that in mind, would, would other engineers come and play your game while it was still in development? And, and, and obviously, would you play theirs too? Did you have yeah. that culture at Atari? Very much so. It was not only allowed, it was expected and it was part of the job to spend some amount of your day playing other people's games. Uh, that was one reason that the games were generally extremely polished by the time they made it to the arcade. Uh, there would be people that were, well, a good example was um, after I did the Sprint 2 and the Sprint 4, you know, another guy, another friend of mine, Steve Calfey, ended up doing uh, Sprint 8, which was an eight-player version of Sprint. Uh, and there was also an eight-player tank. I can't remember who did that one, but that was there too. Hmm. And uh, I'll tell you, the funnest times I had at Atari, among the funnest that I can remember, whatever the game was, and there were quite a number of games that followed that format, there were either four or eight players on a big sort of square console hmm. on all four sides you could gather around. They were incredibly fun because you had all the live interaction that was going on, you know, the the trash talking, yes. and the, uh, uh, the excitement and the thrill of competition, I mean, real competition, you know, humans, you know, playing. Yes, yes, yes. And uh, gosh, I have very good memories of playing those games. I was never very good. <laughs> to be honest with you, there right. were other players, okay. people at Atari who were much better game players than I was, uh, but it was fun. War, a game called Warlord Springs to mind. Yes, um, yes, that's another one. Yes, absolutely. There were some really great ones over the years. Well, there probably still are. I haven't followed the arcade market for quite a while. You you followed um, Domino's um, with Avalanche in 1978, which is an original concept, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. was, this, was this your concept or did this come out of one of Atari's famous brainstorming sessions? Uh, ooh, that's hard to say. Uh, okay. Very seldom did any game that was mentioned in a brainstorming session, and there were a lot of those brainstorming sessions, incidentally, over the years, very seldom did a game follow the exact concept that was proposed at one of those meetings, although they were all recorded and everything. Mm. Uh, It was just the fact that there was a germ of an idea. So now as to whether Avalanche was proposed at one of those brainstorming sessions, I honestly don't remember, but it was a a pretty, as I recall, a pretty original concept of my own. And, uh, you know, it was done, it it was actually never, uh, well, this is kind of odd for my recollection, but I don't recall that we ever anticipated that it was going to be a real game. And the reason I say that is because later when we did, when the Atari Program Exchange, which was one of the very first uh, places where you could go and buy games from one company that were developed by a number of different people and you could download it into your computer and things like that, there was a real lack of that kind of software available. And so I did as part of one of the people who 
kind of was involved in the creation of APX, I did, uh, I converted over or I did, uh, well, as I recall, I actually, I think I converted the code over of Avalanche and uh, of course added color and a few other things that the computer could do that the arcade version couldn't really do. And uh, I don't know, remember what the numbers were, but I do remember that the computer version was vastly more successful than the uh, coin-operated version, you know. Avalanche um, started out, I believe, as as the player catching eggs in a basket mm-hmm. before before the decision was made to switch to rocks and then obviously to name it Avalanche. Yeah. Did this game go out on test as an egg catching game um, or, 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 or was that just something that happened in studio? Uh, gosh, you're... You're asking me more knowledge than I remember about Avalanche. Okay. The one thing I can say for certain is, is it was never intended or in my recollection intended to be a quote successful coin operated game. Uh, it was, I think people, I think what it came down to was, is that people liked the concept. And as a matter of fact, I happen to know it inspired other people later to do superior things. Uh, Mm. I mean, uh, Larry Kaplan at Activision uh, was inspired to do one of his games based on it. And they did a couple of games on Activision when it was based on that concept, uh, which I find gratifying because, you know, we were always trying to, all the developers at that time later were always trying to one-up one another and, you know, come up with clever game ideas and clever tech technical feats and things like that. So that meant a lot. But the, yeah, it was kind of one of those things where I don't have a clear memory of it. And I think it's because it probably never came to a completion in my mind, you know, or fruition. Um, I mean, I really don't remember what the numbers were at all, but it, I can't even recall if it ever made it into real regular production or not, to be honest with you. Um, so I'm a little hazy. I'm not necessarily the best source of information even though i created the game on that one sure sure i actually i'm I'm going to bring paul in at this point because he he would no doubt be able to speak to that paul did avalanche did actually make it into the arcade did it not i think so i've seen a cabinet but only a picture of it so you know that that doesn't necessarily mean it went into production no but it's another wonderfully designed atari cabinet i i've also seen a picture of it which obviously at the very least it would have had a prototype and it's on mame Dennis, you're doing yourself harsh. It's a really simple game, but it's really addictive. And I can see why Kaboom, which basically ripped it off uh, <laughs> several years later, that was that was a huge success. Yeah. So you're doing yourself down there, Dennis, because that was a good, simple game idea. And not only was it addictive, it's one of those games that makes you squint when you play it <laughs> because you're forever missing bits coming down the screen. Well, maybe Larry Kaplan just did a heck of a lot better job implementing my idea than I did. <laughs> Um, you know, I'll, I'll say that Larry's a very smart guy. Uh, what can I say? <laughs> I, I just, you know, we like it. We like it. Dennis, we've talked about some of the games you made that did get released, but we'd like to ask you about one that didn't. Um, what do you remember about the game Wolf? pack because we, we've seen the prototype cabinet pictures uh, on the internet and it looks it looks huge so what are your memories of that game uh well i have uh, uh you know it's funny i was a huge huge fan of the original seawolf right uh you know that was done by oh i can't even remember the company at this point but it was a it was a big success i think midway isn't it? midway yeah i did it right and it was um it was a huge success and i was totally addicted to that game and of course that wasn't done by atari so i had a very strong interest in trying to do a game like that and atari seemed receptive 
And uh, they certainly didn't stint when it came to designing a cabinet for it. I mean, it was a truly impressive piece. If you've seen the prototypes, uh, it had, you know, water uh, sandwiched between the viewer and the screen. And it had all sorts of things, you know, some of which were deleted later and others were added later. Can, can I just uh, say that sounds amazing that you actually put water. I've always been told that water and electronics shouldn't mix. Well, but Atari a, thought otherwise. <laughs> Now, of course, this could be my memory playing tricks on me, so I'm always <laughs> going to qualify that a little bit. But as I recall, at one point, we actually had a little, I would guess I would characterize it as a little uh, four by six inch piece of glass and another identical piece of glass that were separated by metal and probably epoxy together. And they put water in that with a little food dye, as I recall. That's and then they position that between the you know, the viewports where, where your eyes went and the actual screen, which was behind it. What a brilliant idea. <laughs> well, <laughs> it was pretty innovative, I guess, at the time. I'm not sure it, it might have gotten deleted later in the practicalities of building something for the coin-operated market. Yeah. So why, know, did, but... why, didn't, why didn't the game come out? It sounds, uh, oh. like you say, Depth Charge and Seawolf were both really popular, you know, previously. Why did it not make it to market? Well, there were a couple of reasons. I think, number one, uh, you know, this sounds like I may be being overly self-deprecating, but uh, I, I will say that... Uh, I, I was never able to do as good a job, and I got very frustrated working on that project. Um, I thought I could do it, you know, I, but, you know, David Crane, uh, for instance, probably could have done a better job with it, or, or uh, Eugene Jarvis, or, well, there's quite a number of people that were, you know, brilliant game designers, and um, I just think that, unfortunately, I'm not, don't fall quite a category, but the... I was always frustrated because the game never had that addictive quality that the original Seawolf had. Mm. Um, it was, um, I was frustrated on that. Uh, it was also a time of change at Atari. Yes. And uh, I ended up turning the project over, I think, at one point to, oh, I'm not sure. I think it was Ed Logg worked on it for a short time. And then oh, okay. he turned it over to somebody else and... Uh, that in a day, it finally died a death after a couple of years or something into it. Um, yeah. So and, games like games like Wolfpack, and I think you also did some work on Dirt Bike that never yeah. actually made it to market. Right. The, I mean, that must be incredibly frustrating. And we yeah. wondered was that was that a, a motivator for sort of getting out of coin up? Yes, and and it was it was uh, not that unusual. Uh, one of the reasons that you, to this day, many game aficionados still revere the original Atari coin-operated games and the Atari concept was is that Atari killed a tremendous amount of games before they ever made it to market. Yeah. They just weren't mm -hmm. fun enough. They had problems. They were lots of reasons, you know, that they didn't go to market with an awful lot of these games. Uh, I mean, you mentioned a little earlier about how people, I think actually Richard mentioned it, that uh, he had heard that, you know, people in a lab would come and play people's games and offer yeah. comments. Well, if nobody in the lab came to play your game, uh, <laughs> which was unfortunately true of a number of games, uh, it was a pretty strong indicator it wasn't going to do very well out in, the, out in the real market, in the real world. And that was always frustrating for the people that worked on those games. I mean, we, we were there not... We weren't there to make money per se, at least not at the beginning. I mean, we were we were there to do fun things and to create the fun stuff that other people could enjoy. And and if for one reason or another we 
didn't do that or couldn't do that, that was incredibly frustrating to your typical employee, myself included. It reminded me of how mortal I really was and how inadequate as as a game designer and stuff. You know? can, can I say you're, you're incredibly modest and you did touch on, you know, some of your colleagues had a certain confidence and arrogance. Mm-hmm. Dennis, did this mean you sometimes clashed personality wise? Because you, you seem so different to some of the other people that you've described. No, I uh, my strengths have always been. Uh, look, I, I had a great time in my career. Honestly, I really did. Um, and I got to know many, many really brilliant and extremely capable and creative people along the way. And um, I, I consider myself extremely lucky that I was able to even interact with these people or to work with them. I mean, they were, I won't say they were always better than me. I mean, I had my share of idiots that were surrounded me. I mean, you know, <laughs> there was always those people, but. Yeah, you, you all, I feel very at home here, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Dennis, when you did leave Coinol, one of the you didn't leave Atari. No, um, one of your jobs was in the handheld division, and mm-hmm. we noticed an interesting arcade link is that you worked on the handheld game called Touch Me, which was, of course, you know, a portable version of an old Atari game, Touch mm-hmm. Me. Um, mm-hmm. I just wondered, so does this suggest that there was quite a lot of cooperation between the separate divisions there? No, not really. Uh, they were always, <laughs> I wouldn't say right. cooperation is the word I would use. The uh, There was an extreme <laughs> rivalry between the various divisions. Now, that's not to say that people in one division didn't have friends in the other division. And, you know, there was certainly some interaction, but in general, the big the big schism uh, between at Atari was always in engineering was always between the coin op and the consumer. Right. But there were smaller uh, divisions uh, inside those things that were you know, and they all developed their own different little cultures. I mm-hmm. mean, pinball you, we were talking about it earlier it ended up with its own little uh, you know division and people and ways of doing things. And then we were given the mission, which I was getting bored, I guess, with doing what I was doing at that point, where we could maybe go off and create handhelds and, you know, using some new technology at the time that never panned out at, the, at that point. But, um, you know, basically tabletop games and handhelds. So unfortunately, the reason that Touch Me came along, and I was very angry about that, actually, when I was doing it. It turns out that Milton Bradley's, you know, version of Simon was incredibly successful. And it was based on an Atari arcade game that was was. modestly successful at best. It was kind of like another avalanche. (laughs) Uh, And anyway, uh, I didn't do it, but I'm saying that that was my recollection. And um, what happened was, is that Atari got the great idea that, so, well, wait a minute, you know, here's Milton Bradley, you know, raking in millions, you know, over Simon, because it was extremely popular over our game concept. They were, the Atari management was a little, was quite miffed about this, I recall. Mm -hmm. And so they said, well, by God, we're going to come out with uh, our own version. And so one of the things that we were, and it was not part of our main goal at the little handheld division that we were in, but they came to us and they said, look, we need you to create a, you know, version of this uh, Simon and uh, you know we need it done pretty quick and all that sort of thing and and so that's the reason that it used a standard calculator case yes. and standard LEDs yeah so consequently um, I was I was very 
very unhappy working on that project oh. because in my mind, I was not that aware of the Atari version, you know, because it was never really very successful. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And um, although I was aware that it existed, but I was uh, just angry that I was being asked to copy, you know, somebody else's game. And so in spite, I basically made it my mission, although I never told anybody at the time, but I made it my mission to recreate Simon as exactly as I could in this little handheld. And so that's what I did. I remember sitting there <laughs> measuring the duration of the pulses and the, the actual frequencies of the sound and, and all the other thing and the timing and all the rest of it as accurately as I could to basically, it was kind of like a silent protest, I guess you might call it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm fascinated then because that means that you've worked in coin-op, you've worked a little bit in the pinball division, mm -hmm. you've then worked in the handheld division and you end up working in the consumer division of Atari, mm -hmm. which must be some kind of record. So um, you've talked a bit about the rivalries there. So you are in a unique position to give us your insight. Was, was there one division that you sort of felt most affinity with? Tell us. Oh, gee, that's a little hard to say, but I had a great time in coin-op. I marveled at the level of talent that they had there, and um, I have nothing but good things to say about them, except that the one thing that I always was a little surprised by was is that more people didn't spin off from Atari and create other companies. And I think it's partially because Atari CoinOp treated those people so well. And a lot of them finished out their careers there, uh, even after numerous ownership changes and numerous you know changes in society and technology over the years. And since I had more of an entrepreneurial bent, and more desire to improve my own situation, I was one of the very few people who actually left CoinOp. And that's one of the reasons I went to Consumer. Mm. Now, Consumer had its own set of challenges and rewards and, and frustrations too. And um, I have a lot of good memories from Consumer, but I think I have more negative memories about Consumer than I do negative memories about CoinOp, for instance. You end up leaving consumer, but to go and set up a rival consumer uh, <laughs> setup, Imagic. Now, now, Dennis, that adventure of yours deserves a whole podcast of its own, but our podcast focuses on coin-op. Sure, so sure. I, I, we just wanted to ask kind of, so you're out there at Imagic, you know, producing hugely successful games. Um, we just wondered, if, did you keep an eye on the kind of coin-op uh, market, mm -hmm. particularly as it kind of exploded just as you'd sort of left it, you know, that with your asteroids and missile command and centipede. Well, they, they, you know, acquired a lot of very talented people. I mean, but yes, I kept an eye on it. It was, uh, they were doing some great things. I mean, mm. basically, uh, there, there were quite a number of good people they acquired later, uh, Ed Log, obviously one of the all-time yes. great game designers. Uh, Ed Rotberg yeah. and Dave Toyer. Did you work with Dave Toyer at all? Dave Toyer. That was the guy I was trying to think of. It just yeah, Dave Toyer, brilliant, brilliant designer. Um, good stuff. They did a lot of really innovative things. Mm -hmm. They were putting custom math boxes and things in these arcade machines that were yeah. really uh, orders of light years ahead of what you could do in the consumer end in terms of they actually had hardware to do floating point and hardware to do various vector generation and things yeah, like that. Dennis, did um, did you ever then, when you saw CoinOp exploding, bearing in mind that you had been there in the early groundbreaking days, mm -hmm. is that did you ever did you ever sort of regret leaving CoinOp? Um, 
No, not really. Uh, for me, I, um, I was always looking for the next best thing. You know, I was always, um, you know, no matter how successful a business is, there's always uh, the dog work aspect of any business. Everything from, you know, too many meetings uh, with not enough getting done to uh, various uh, strictures that you have to follow that are imposed by either government or society or, you know, various things like that. I think that, you know, to answer your earlier question is I do think I prefer CoinOp overall because there were less, it was a more structured environment in a sense, and it was a very close-knit group and uh, still was until its final days, really. And the thing is, is that I always was looking for the next best thing. And so it's kind of funny because I've become, in a way, although I'm surrounded by gadgets and gear, as you could imagine, I'm also somewhat of a bit of a Luddite these days. I mean, uh, one of my thoughts is, is that I still wonder if the world that I helped create, along with many, many others, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of others, is really all that beneficial for society. You know, I mean, we help, you know, for better, for worse, the people at Atari and subsequent companies and everything, you know, helped create this environment that we have today. Is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Is it, uh, what are the benefits? What are the detriments? Those are things you think about. Wow. We've got another whole podcast involving <laughs> the philosophy of technology. But um, for now, I will just say this. So when Imagic sadly goes uh, under, mm -hmm. it was time to return to CoinOp. And Tony is going to pick up that story with Sente. Dennis, uh, as Paul mentioned, you joined Sente in 1984, just as they were being acquired by Bally, I believe. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned earlier you had no regrets about leaving the Cornot division at Atari, but you did go back to the industry by joining Sente. How did you feel about returning to the Cornot business after your um, after your break? Um. I had a few qualms, to be honest with you, but there were not, if I wanted to stay in the games business, there were very limited choices at that point. You could, uh, all the consumer, you have to remember the consumer market after the crash of Atari uh, in the consumer business laid dormant for quite a while. And then Nintendo 8-bit came along hmm. and uh, it just caused a revolution. All of a sudden, you know, they, they were doing excellent games on a, a much advanced hardware that had anything that had come before, really. And uh, we played, we used to sit there in, in Bally and play the Nintendo games on, a, on an 8-bit We'd play them for hours. They were really excellent games. So my cons my choices were, if I wanted to stay in consumer, these were being dominated increasingly by Japanese companies at that time. You know, the only U.S. companies that were doing that sort of thing were basically pinball companies. Mm. And I didn't want to move back to the Midwest, which is where the Midways and the Valleys and the, all the others were located. So... My choices were rather limited and CoinUp was firmly established on the West Coast at that point. And, you know, and of course, I, it helped that I knew Ed and Howie and Roger Hector and a number of the other people that worked at Sente at the time. And it just seemed like a natural choice for me. Yeah. And Sente, of course, was um, Nolan Bushnell's big idea to turn the arcade industry on its head. In its, and it did, ultimately. Yeah. I, 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 just in his, his open letter to the industry, amongst other things, things he said um, what this business needs is a total rethink that begins making some kind of economic sense and provides a level of profitability that will guarantee future stability and growth i have a plan that i believe will do this it's called the sente system mm -hmm. 
I wonder how much of that um, uh, sort of, you know, Bushnell hype you bought into and how much of your decision to join Sente was because all your old mates were there, I guess. I think the decision to join Sente was more about my old mates than anything else. I mean, I was very aware of the, uh, you know, the kit concept mm. and it ultimately turned out to be the the winner idea. You know, uh, I mean, I don't follow point up these days, or, you know, whatever there is of it. But I do know that, you know, games had gotten ridiculously expensive. I mean, if you were to buy a, uh, a Sprint 2, for instance, or something like that, it was, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars mm-hmm. uh, or to buy any game because they were they were literally handmade custom pieces. Yeah, they went through an assembly line, but they weren't built by robots. They were built by people and they were quite unique. Everything about them was unique. They didn't use the same art. They didn't use the same controls. They didn't use anything that was the same, you know, uh, with the possible exception of the motherboard a little bit. But even that changed a lot, you know, over the years. So consequently, it was a very innovative concept. But I will tell you this, at the risk of, maybe offending some people out there. Uh, But you have to remember that at this point when Nolan was uh, his next big idea, uh, the bloom was a little off of Nolan at that point. Uh, I could tell you some of the rumors and stuff that I had heard over the years. But uh, the thing is, is that he was not in the business, at least among the rank and file, was not as universally Uh, revered as he was prior to the Atari crash and all the rest. Mm -hmm. And so consequently, we had, I would say the general feeling at Sente was, is that we all liked and respected Nolan, but by the same token, uh, we were very skeptical of a lot of his ideas and his pronouncements. Mm -hmm. And of course, a true dreamer like Nolan, uh, he was um, always spouting new ideas uh, he was talking about Bitcoin before Bitcoin came along. He was talking about, you know, virtual currency and plastic money. I remember one of the brainstorming sessions. Mm-hmm. And quite frankly, most of us at the session thought it was just poppycock. We just thought it was ridiculous. We couldn't even imagine, you know, that this could ever be a viable thing. You know, yeah, look at today. It's not it's not overwhelmingly popular, but it is a, a fixture of the landscape today. So, you know. Yeah. And uh, I, I'm very struck by some of the hardware that Sente produced. The, the SAC1 cab or the SAC1 was, was mm-hmm. very, very distinctive if you lined it up amongst other arcade games. Again, was that a deliberate choice by Sente to come up with hardware that, that was distinct compared to the traditional wooden cabinet with the marquee? And the- oh, there's no question about it. I think that we, uh, we had, you have to remember, Sente was a very, very small company. Uh, they were, we had at the peak, which is when I joined them, uh, there were about 60 plus employees in the entire company. Right after Warner uh, Bally Bottom, they had a major layoff, which I had to be one of the guys that delivered the bad news. I remember that. Um, I don't think Owen Rubin's ever forgiven me, actually. <laughs> I had to let him go. Uh, but, you know, he's still a good friend and everything, but I felt really bad about it. Uh, Dennis, I find it interesting that you mentioned earlier that you felt that Sente's answer to the coin-op industry's problems was the right answer, and yet Sente ultimately failed. There's a, a kind of a sort of dichotomy there. I just just wonder if you can talk to why you felt Sente ultimately didn't make it. Uh, you know, I'm not exactly sure now that I think it's the first <laughs> time somebody's asked that question. I do know that... Um, 
there was an increasing friction between Roger Hector and Ed Rotberg in particular. And what happened was there was a very ugly incident that occurred where Ed was asked to leave the company. It came out of left field in a sense to him, I'm sure. He was he was just shocked when that happened. Um, and uh, I don't remember too much of what happened after that. Um, the uh, you know, the thing about Ed is he's a, he's a very smart guy. I mean, I highly respect his knowledge, his technical knowledge. He's a very hard worker, really, really a, a good guy in a lot of ways. Still a, still a pretty good friend. Um, he, um, he was increasingly uh, kind of an increasingly disruptive figure at Sente, and uh, that created a certain amount of dissension in itself. I'm not sure. It probably had somewhat to do with uh, Bally's uh, management and their connection to, I believe it was Seagram's at the time and, uh, you know, something along those lines. But I wasn't really privy to those discussions, you know, so. Mm -hmm. And what about of the games themselves? I, you were involved with uh, mini golf, uh, Stocker and Night Stocker, all arguably within themselves, you know, reasonably playable games. But clearly, they weren't terribly prevalent on the floors of the arcade. And I wonder how much of that was, with the greatest of respect, the actual quality of the games just simply didn't capture the public's imagination. Or, again, as you alluded to earlier, maybe just the size of the organization meant you didn't have the you know leverage of big marketing budgets and the full backing of Bally in order to get product out to market? Well, I'd like to say that it was mainly due to distribution issues and uh, <laughs> lack of funding and personnel and stuff like that. Now, that's that would fit with my narrative. Now, yeah. <laughs> now another possibility is, and I'll just mention it, uh, not saying that I agree with it, but, uh, you know, I will uh, give you a little anecdote. Um, when I was younger at Atari, I felt that I knew exactly what the public wanted. Um, I felt I was very in touch with the mainstream and that I could uh, predict in advance which games would be good and sell well and other ones that I knew weren't going to do as well, all that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Now, as I've gotten, this has been a slow process, but as I've aged over the years, I've come to realize I don't know what the public wants anymore. Uh, now I'm representing, you know, the the endpoint at this point in time, so far out of sync with the mainstream. So consequently, you know, one answer, of course, would be that even at the time of Sente, I maybe didn't know as well what the public would really like, you know. So that's always a possibility. You have to consider that. Right. Um, but I think honestly, the real answer was is that it was more of a business model in terms of being able to produce the games, uh, ship them out in quantity. In other words, get the distribution into the various arcades. Yeah. Um, those sorts of things. I think that was the real answer. Dennis, Sente, Sente closed its doors in 1988. And I was going to ask if you were there until the bitter end, but actually I believe that you, you left prior to that. And of course you stayed in the games industry and had a huge success with games like Sonic Spinball for the Mega Drive and the PGA Gold series. Mm -hmm. When When you look back, how does your time making arcade games compare to the years spent making home games, would you say? Ah, uh, okay. What happened was, is when Sente finally closed down, um, we were, uh, we, meaning the actual programmers slash designers, were contacted by, um, I believe it was 
gosh, I want to say it was Midway, but I can't remember exactly, to be honest with you. Uh, but it was one of the major companies. It might have been Valley itself. I'm not sure. Uh, they offered us contracts to do a game each. And they set us up. It was an incredibly generous contract. And uh, for each of us, it was individual, but we were all very well paid. And they set us up in a facility and bought us all this equipment and everything. And the goal was to each of us to create a game. And there were like, uh, oh, there was probably around six to eight people there at that point. Mm. And I'm not sure if we had a, a, a name or anything as a company. You know, we were just individually hired contractors in a way. Well, this went on for a few months. Mm. And then one day, uh, a guy showed up from the parent company. And uh, it became quite obvious quite quickly that they were shutting this whole operation down. Well, the thing, there was an inconvenient fact that kind of uh, block them from doing that is we had no, we all had no canceled contracts right. and they owed us a lot of money. And so it was this person's, I remember his first name, Joe, it was his, it was his job to settle out the contracts. And so each of us were called into the office with him. We spent about an hour with him, each of us, and we negotiate, each of us negotiated a deal where we would get a payout or settlement. And um, that's what happened upon, you know, the closing of Sente, Valley Sente. And um, then, uh, you know, you're right. At that point, I linked up with Lee Actor in a long and very successful career, uh, initially as Sterling Silver Software, later became Polygames. Right. Sure. Uh, yeah. yeah. And we, we had... We had everything you needed. We had all the industry contacts between us, uh, me more than Lee, of course, but uh, but he had uh, he was also a brilliant guy, you know, and a very good game designer, extremely meticulous, mm. and um, was uh, we got a deal with uh, initially with Tengen, which was a uh, subsidiary of Atari, yes, uh, and that's where. Dan Van Eldren got his start in upper management. He was the president of Tengen. Mm. And their job was to create consumer versions of some of the arcade games uh, for Atari at the time, since Atari no longer had a, quote, consumer division. Mm. So they had this company, Tengen. And the day-to-day -day manager was a guy by the name of Steve Calfee, who I mentioned earlier, who was a good friend of mine. And so, and we knew Dan Van Eldren, and we knew everybody there. So we entered into a kind of what I would call a bread and butter arrangement with uh, with them, with Tengen, whereas we would produce cartridges for the Genesis and for, well, a number of consoles, actually, over the years of uh, games that were currently popular in the arcade, uh, which included games like Pit Fighter and Hard Driving and um, various games like that. And um, they were pretty tight with their dollars, <laughs> I'll be honest with okay. you. But they were they were an honest, good company to work for. And um, they that's why I call it a bread and butter arrangement, because we would do several of these a year for them. And they paid bills, quite frankly. Uh, they were the people, they, they didn't make us rich or anything, but they, they paid for our, our mortgages, and all that sort of thing. And they were, they were like our bread and butter. And at the same time, we then started getting contracts with some of the other big names in the industry because they all knew us. We were we were probably the premier uh, development group in the nation or maybe in the world at the time. Uh, 
at one point, we controlled something like 5% of the global market, Lee Acker and myself. Wow. Yeah. And um, that was a pretty nice thing. I mean, we entered into a deal with Electronic Arts, which I was the director of software there for a short while. Mm. And we, you know, that started the whole PGA Tour golf series, which was turned out to be incredibly successful. We literally sold millions of those over the years. Mm. We had every we had European versions and all sorts of things. I spent I spent days playing that game on my Mega Drive. <laughs> PGA PGA Tour Golf Two. Hours and hours. Yeah, yeah. There were a lot of people who liked that game. And that ironically came out of the fact that we initially were going to uh do a Jack Nicholas game and then uh Accolade. Uh, or was it Activision, I believe, or Accolade, they uh, snatched the contract out from under our noses. And um, so we were left with a, quote, second choice, which was PGA Tour. But it actually turned out to be substantially more successful than the Nicholas product. And we did quite well with them. And then we got a deal with Sega, because we knew people at Sega, of course. And uh, we got a call from Roger Hector at the time, who was an old Atari guy. And he, uh, Sega was desperate. They were, uh, you know, they were riding high on the Genesis and uh, quite frankly, their their flagship product was Sonic Mm. and uh, they were supposed to be releasing Sonic 3 at Christmas. Well, it became apparent that they weren't going to make it. And so we were the hired guns that were brought in at the last moment to do a, a version of Sonic for the Christmas market. Oh, wow. Okay. And that was insanity. Uh, I will tell you, it wasn't quite as bad. Yeah, I was as... going to say, you say the last minute. Uh, what are we looking at here in, term, in terms of time frame? Uh, we're looking at under three months. <laughs> so it's almost, you're, you're almost full circle back to Domino's days. Yeah, well, it was almost, in many ways, it was way worse than Domino's because the technology advanced so much. I mean, you know, there was capable of real art, you know, and, and uh, we had a brilliant designer. And um, anyway, uh, we literally, uh, I have to tell you, this is, you know, today you think nothing of calling, you know, halfway around the world and spending, you know, a couple of cents, you know, on your call. Yeah. Uh, But back in those days, this was back before deregulation of the uh, telephone system and before the breakup of AT&T and all the rest of it. Right. And um, phone calls were expensive back in those days. And um, that three month period, I literally, and I'm, I'm not exaggerating in the slightest, but I literally spent hours each day on the phone while trying to program and trying to do other things. Um, The bill that I got, which was again, not too bad by today's (laughs) standards, but you have to consider that this is when telephone bills were 10 or $20, you know, a month for most people. I got a bill for like 300 bucks the first month and then 600 bucks the second month and so on and so forth. Okay. Uh, so we were we were in a very intense mode. It was we were all super burned out by the end of that. But the product was exactly what we anticipated it would be. It was a good stop back product, and it ended up selling millions. We sold, I believe, over three million of those Sonic spinballs, and um, we did quite well. And uh, between that and PGA Tour Golf, it basically made us very, very well off, both Lee and I, which we are grateful for to this day. Yeah, sure. You do, you, you miss these days, right, Dennis? It sounds sounds very much like you do. Uh, you know, in, in a way I do. Um, I, I'd be lying if I said it wasn't. I suspect I'm falling more into the what you're probably hearing is uh, a little bit of the COVID thing. I mean, uh, I crave social interaction and things like that. And of yeah, course, yeah. and you've been going through it in the UK, just like we are. You know, the lack of daily social engagement with uh, your peers, mm. 
or people that you would consider interesting. Mm. Mm. Those days are far and few between these days, you know, and so you're probably hearing a little bit of that. Well, the Ted Dabney experience is uh, very much being the um, the lockdown podcast. Um, really? Certainly having, you know, uh, being afforded this time um, to do to to dedicate. I can speak for all three of us to what, you know, to something that, that interests us so much. is. Yeah. Uh, this is what we've done while the world stopped, Dennis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically, we we we've just looked back at all the stuff that was happening when when technology. Well, I mean, no, so I'm kind of going off on a on a on a random tangent now. <laughs> Come on, Richie, bring it together. <laughs> um, this is all this is all gold. Thank you so much. It's really it's it's genuinely an honour, mm-hmm. um, and it's it's lovely to hear you to reminisce and you know for you to share your views on the industry both back then and perhaps. The way the, the way it's gone um, in the last twenty years. Yeah, well, I tell you, I'm I'm grateful to have uh, people like yourselves uh, here to refresh my memory. I don't for some things. Can, can I just thank you so much for your eloquence, for your honesty, uh, and I'd also like to say that next time you're at a retro show, I I hope you have adoring fans from all genders. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a little old for that now, but oh, I don't know. <laughs> I appreciate it. Uh, Dennis, thank you so much for sharing your um, extensive stories with us. Um, Your candidness uh, just brought the whole thing alive. So uh, thank you so much. Sure. Thank you, Dennis. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Ted Dabney Experience podcast with me, Richard May, Retro Gamer Magazine's Paul Drury, and arcade blogger, Tony Temple. The show was produced and edited by myself, with a bespoke score and sound suite by Ghost of Wood. Additional technical support by Jason Arbor. Dennis, Sente closed its doors in 1988, I believe. Were you there until the bitter end, so to speak? Uh, No, and I'm trying to remember why. You could help me refresh my memory. Where did I end up after that? Tony, with Paul. Grandpa! (laughs) (laughs) Paul. I think 
I think you went into, didn't you do Mega Drive games after that? You moved into, you did some home stuff and then you went into Mega Drive stuff. Are we, are we your collective memory? <laughs> <laughs> Give me three consonants and a vowel, okay? Yeah. <laughs> 